Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. I am your host, Jill Miller, and our guest today is Dr. Stoll. Dr. Stoll is a pediatric rheumatologist who earned his MD and PhD at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse in 2001. He followed this with completion of res- residency in pediatrics at the Long Island Jewish Medical Center in 2004 and a fellowship in pediatric rheumatology at the Children's Hospital in Boston in 2007. He's been at the University of Alabama at Birmingham since 2011. During his fellowship, Dr. Stoll developed an interest in clinical epidemiology of pediatric spondyloarthritis, and he subsequently turned his attention to the links between spondyloarthritis and inflammatory bowel disease. For the last 10 years, his focus has been on the role of the intestinal microbiota in the pathogenesis of spondyloarthritis. An additional research interest of his is the diagnosis and treatment of temporomandibular joint arthritis in children with juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Dr. Stoll, as a mother, thank you for joining us today to talk about uh, juvenile spondyloarthritis and uh, welcome. We're really excited to have you. Well, thank you for the invitation. So I think the first place I'd love to start is how, for the listeners, is juvenile spondyloarthritis different from other forms of arthritis? So from an epidemiologic standpoint, the uh, demographics are different. So many other forms of juvenile arthritis typically begin in early childhood and are far more frequently seen in girls as compared to boys, whereas bondal arthritis typically begins in older children, say at least age eight or nine and up through the adolescent years, and of course, in early adulthood. It also has an equal distribution between males and females, and some of the symptoms are different. So we certainly can see some joint swelling, especially in the large joints of the lower extremities, but many of them will have symptoms that can be harder or more challenging to recognize, including enthesitis, which is inflammation where a tendon inserts into a bone. Um, The most common of those is the Achilles tendon, and they can also have back pain and back inflammation, which can be very difficult to recognize. So how early would children be diagnosed? Typically, it's, it, well, let me say this, it's rare for it to be diagnosed before age seven or eight, although I have had a handful of children who are diagnosed earlier than that. Okay. And is the process similar for an adult? Like, what is the process you go through in the diagnosis? So often the most challenging aspect is having them referred to us. Because they don't often have joint swelling, they can have more enthesopathy or back inflammation. They may not be recognized as having arthritis and needing rheumatology referral right away, especially if providers are unaware that children can develop arthritis. So the idea of maybe they've got some back pain, they don't understand why, they played a little too much in the yard, and it doesn't start to reveal itself. 
Exactly. Okay. Uh, and is fatigue a big one for juvenile arthritis? You say fatigue? Fatigue, yeah. Do kids, I know the on the adult side, we fatigue out. <laughs> I'm wondering if kids do or if they just kind of keep their energy going. We do. We see it in all forms of arthritis, not just bone arthritis. We can see fatigues. And this can be a very challenging symptom to treat. Sometimes when we treat the underlying arthritis, the fatigue improves. Other times, unfortunately, it really it persists. Mm. So I know there has been a lot of change in the disease community over the last decade or two decades. Uh, what are the newest developments in diagnosis or treatment for juvenile spa? So from a treatment standpoint, we have a new, as of December of last year, we have a new therapy that is indicated for the treatment of juveniles and related arthritis or psoriatic arthritis. And this is uh, Sacucinumab or Cosentix. And this has been used in adults bundle arthritis for several years. And now it, we are able to use it in children. So that's a huge advantage for us. It's a that's huge awesome. From a diagnostic standpoint, there's been a lot of work from Dr. Pamela Weiss's group at CHOP using MRI to identify features based upon history and exam that are predictive of spinal arthritis, as well as, and by spinal arthritis, I'm specifically referring to sacroiliitis. And as well, she's defining features on MRI that distinguish normal children from children with sacroiliitis. So for a, a parent who already has spondyloarthritis um, and they have children that may be showing symptoms, is the would it be logical to get your kids checked? And would you think of the same kind of symptom set as maybe like that I had originally? Would I, would I think that that would apply to my kids? There is a lot of overlap between the symptoms that a child with back pain will present or back inflammation will present with as with an adult. So if you as a parent have axial spondyloarthritis and now you see your child is having back pain, back stiffness, heel pain, any of those sort of symptoms, then I would definitely um, recommend rheumatology referral. And is it the same? Uh... When I go, I always have to fill out the BASDI and the, a couple of different things. Is it a very similar evaluation of the disease and tracking? It's similar. We tend not to use the BASDI in pediatric practice. And some of the other measures, the ASDAS, we don't use. There is a, um, a different set of criteria or disease activity score called the JSPADA also developed by Dr. Weiss, that is used sometimes in a clinical setting and certainly in a research setting, but will likely ask the same questions that are asked in an adult coming in with back pain, perform a similar exam on children as you may have experienced as an adult. And um, then if we're unclear of the diagnosis, we'll often obtain an MRI. One difference between children and adults is that in adults very often or at least in some cases, an x-ray can be diagnostic. If you've had untreated inflammation in your 
sacroiliac joints and lumbar spine for decades, as unfortunately is the case in many adults by the time they show up to a rheumatologist, you can see very advanced changes in the x-ray that are diagnostic. In children, this is very rare. It can occur, and but fortunately, most of the time when their children come in, it is pre-radiographic. So the x-ray may be required by insurance to get the MRI, but ultimately the MRI will be the defining test. Awesome. And we often talk about the lag time and diagnosis. Uh, and you said when kids get to you, that's really the, the important piece. Right. Uh, is, there, is there a significant lag time between onset of symptoms and diagnosis as they get as they move through the medical system? So I'm not aware of any recent data looking at the lag time specifically for juvenile spinal arthritis. In general, for JIA, I believe an average can be a year or two, depending on the category, but I don't, I can't cite specific numbers for you. Okay. I was just interested because I know, right, some of it, well, and some of those juveniles that don't get diagnosed may end up as adults, finally. <laughs> um, uh, is there, a, once someone gets to you, are there common misdiagnoses that might be associated with juvenile spa? So certainly they can be misdiagnosed as having some form of fibromyalgia, amplified pain, if they're coming in with back pain, say antisodic pain without obvious swelling. Other times they may be misdiagnosed as having a different form of arthritis, which is not nearly as harmful as having a misdiagnosis of a different category of illness, because if they come in and you're thought of as having polyarticular JIA, when in fact you have spinal arthritis, a lot of the first line treatments are similar. It's really when you get to more advanced therapeutics do the treatments diverge. Or if the back inflammation is missed, then that can have implications if the child is not on appropriate therapy. Okay. Uh, how important is it if you suspect something might be going on with your child? Uh, how important is early diagnosis for the overall progression of the disease in a lifetime? So it is important and, and depends in part on how you define early. It's not something that has to be seen within, say, days or even weeks of onset of symptoms. The main, the two main reasons why we want a child to be diagnosed relatively early is, number one, of course, to reduce the pain and the discomfort associated with arthritis. The second is to prevent long-term damage from occurring. Fortunately, the long-term damage is a very slow process. It takes years to develop radiographic changes. And so most of the time, which is why most of the time, our patients have not achieved the radiographic state. Certainly some have, and many of them, most of them have not. So from that standpoint, it's not essential to, to be diagnosed early, but it's also important for the child, for their quality of life to be have their symptoms validated, understood, and treated. Okay. And as, as a parent myself, uh, there's always a lot of fear when you think that something's going on with your child. Um, and I know there's a number of treatment protocols for children. Um, so can you talk a little bit about those options and like the, the progression of the treatment based on 
uh, getting some good results? Sure. So it depends in part on whether they have peripheral arthritis or only axial involvement. Peripheral arthritis likely responds to traditional disease-modifying agents. And so the juvenile arthritis treatment guidelines recommend starting with doing the diagnostic evaluation. And we don't necessarily know what the child has. We don't know if it's inflammatory or some other cause of back pain. So we can recommend NSAIDs while we're in the process of obtaining labs, getting the MRI approved, and then deciding to start therapy. For physical therapy, I generally don't recommend that prior to the imaging if I have a high suspicion of spinal arthritis. If I have a low suspicion, or if it's a child who would require sedation for an MRI, which makes it a higher risk procedure than someone who can sit still for it, then I'll recommend physical therapy. And often insurance is gonna require a course of physical therapy or NSAIDs prior to approval of the MRI. If, they, if the MRI shows established diagnosis of spinal arthritis, then my recommendation is to continue NSAIDs as needed to start on the biologic treatment. I think you just explained that you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't do physical therapy, recommend physical therapy before you had some actual evidence. Right. And it depends on my suspicion for axial spinal arthritis in the child with back pain. If it's a very high suspicion, then optimally I'll move straight towards getting an MRI, although we may have to do some NSAIDs or physical therapy before we can get it approved. If it's a low suspicion, especially if it's a child who's going to require sedation for an MRI, which makes it a higher risk procedure, then we may try NSAIDs and physical therapy before moving forward with the MRI. Okay. And in terms of effectiveness, I know, right, everyone wants their child to feel better. So uh, how effective are the treatments once there's a diagnosis and a treatment in place? Most of the time, they're very effective. And that's true for Embryl, Humira, Remicade. All of them have studies showing benefit in Cosentix most recently. And the, uh, in terms of side effects, children generally experience limited and still have bigger bigger quality of life gains than the side effects. Right. Exactly. So most of these medicines, the biologics, don't have a whole lot of side effects on a day-to-day basis. You can have some pain with the injections, especially with Enbril now. But as far as nausea, fatigue, some of the side effects that we see with the traditional DMARDs, those are pretty infrequent. Now, there is a risk of infections with all the biologics, and some of them carry a uh, warning from the FDA, raising the risk of a higher um, risk of, of cancers. But that is controversial even now, 25 years into use of TNF inhibitors. And overall, most children can go on these medicines very safely. That's news. Uh, so once someone is diagnosed, are there lifestyle changes that improve uh, will improve the symptoms or help them to manage, especially as a young person? There is not much data in children as far as lifestyle changes. Most children are pretty active to begin with, and we do encourage them to be as active as they want to be. As far as diet, that hasn't been studied a whole lot in children. Even in adults, different foods for different adults may trigger symptoms 
And if you as a parent notice that a certain food triggers your symptoms or triggers your children's symptoms, then I would encourage you to follow your observations. However, there isn't a whole lot of data in children as a whole looking at the impacts of different diets. So as a parent, we can't use it as used to stop telling, to tell them to stop eating sugar all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I think we need to have a study on that. Uh, There should be data. Uh, It would make a lot of mother's days easier. Uh, So one thing I imagine that you probably have some interaction or some experience with is, uh, I know for me, this is an emotional disease for myself. And I imagine parents feel the impact of it when their child is diagnosed, but how, how do the kids do in terms of like, what is the emotional impact for some children and how do they, you know, cope with knowing that they're moving forward through life with a, with something that's chronic? I think in many cases, getting an answer and saying, this is what you have, this is what we can do to help you is really helps your emotional state as compared to showing up, you're in pain, you don't know what's going on. It can be scary looking at the possibility of a lifetime of having to be on medicines, but overall I think getting the diagnosis, getting what we really can deliver, which is good news as far as how we can treat this and get them back to feeling normal, really, I think most of the time helps their emotional state. And, and if kids are struggling, recommend that they talk to somebody or that they see somebody on a regular basis for that sort of the coping me- mechanism or working through some of the issues they might feel? Definitely. I would recommend working, trying to find a counselor who has experience working with children with chronic illness. Okay. Uh, and then overall mm-hmm. does the does the impact of having j spot vary for kids or is it typically once they're on a treatment path there's limited impact on their daily life or what do you see there i've seen a gamut i've seen children who start on a treatment and they're immediately back to normal able to do full activities and nobody around them would even know that they have a chronic illness. And the only difference between them and anybody else is that they have to take injections and see rheumatologists get get labs drawn. I've seen others who have had to cycle through different medicines and have not found one that works as well for them. And that can be a very frustrating experience for the family. I bet. Uh, In terms of long-term outlook, what are some of the complications or disabilities that may come up with having J-SPA? So about 60% of adults with spinal arthritis have some degree of intestinal inflammation. This has been, this was identified through studies using colonoscopy performed in the 1980s and 1990s prior to the development of drugs that are medications that are widely used to treat this condition. So children and adults with I'm sorry, children and adults with spinal arthritis need to be aware of the possibility of developing frank inflammatory bowel disease. If we have someone who's say doing well on NSAIDs even or on Embrolia even Humira, he now shows up with abdominal pain, loose stools, diarrhea, weight loss, 
and abnormal labs, then we need to have them evaluated by gastroenterology to screen for inflammatory bowel disease. Another complication is uveitis. In most children, in children with most categories of juvenile arthritis, the uveitis tends to be silent, requiring screening eye exams to make the diagnosis. In children with J-spot, especially if they are positive for HLA-B27, then they have the same form of acute anterior uveitis that adults can get. This is often unilateral, so one, only one eye is involved, either eye, and it's red, it's painful, the light bothers them. If this is your first symptom of spinal arthritis, you're gonna have no idea what this is from. Your doctor's gonna think that this is an infection or a foreign body in the eye, and it takes an ophthalmologist to make the diagnosis. So that's something that they should be aware of because this is treatable. And those all sound, it's, and it's very, it's so interesting to me how symptoms may be a little similar to adults, but they're very, like, the signs are different. <laughs> this has been, like, really good for me to learn. And I'm sure a lot of parents out there who are listening that just the distinctions. Uh, how do parents, how do you suggest that parents support kids once they've got a diagnosis? Um, so parents and caregiver, parents and caregivers can best support a child with spinal arthritis by being well informed regarding the child's diagnosis and treatments. They should encourage their child to communicate openly with them and with their healthcare providers as far as how they're feeling physically and emotionally. And the child should be included in decision-making to the extent that's appropriate based upon their age and maturity level. Um, they should encourage a child to remain physically active to the extent that they are interested in being active and to work with coping skills for stress and anxiety, work on good sleep hygiene and encourage them to seek counseling if they are having difficulties with stress or anxiety. Okay. and. Resource-wise, where do you direct people for resources for families that have uh, juvenile spondyloarthritis as part of their uh, part of their own family? An organization called PR Coin, which is a pediatric rheumatology care and outcomes improvement network that provides a lot of information about diagnosis, treatment, emotional support, school accommodations, uh, financial resources, and disease management. Okay, great. Uh, okay, so I, I'm slightly obsessed with learning about microbiome. So I'd love to hear some of the work you've done around microbiome and maybe the, uh, uh, the TMJ work you've done. Sure. So I've been studying the role of the gut bacteria and microbiome in children's arthritis, as well as in somewhat in adults for the last 10 years. We, including some of my studies, have shown decreased abundance of an organism called Fecalobacterium presnitsi, which is generally considered to be an anti-inflammatory arthritis through acting on, for example, immune development in a young child. So there's a lot we need to learn about not only how the microbiome is altered, but also the mechanism by which the alterations impact immune the disease success in trying to alter the microbiome as a ther therapeutic tool in both children and adults with 
arthritis. There was a study on probiotics in children with spinal arthritis a few years ago that showed no benefit. And likewise, several studies of probiotics in adults with spinal arthritis have also not shown benefit. That's unfortunate. I'm hoping we get there, right? I think there's a, I think there's a, uh, there's a lot of work going on in that area. So I'm, I'm excited for the future on that. And uh, in terms of, uh, I'd never thought about, right? So TMJ mm -hmm. with arthritis. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? It's something that I'm sure. Sure. So most children with arthritis, and the studies vary somewhat, but most children will have some extent of TMJ or jaw arthritis. Before we had any treatments, so going back 40, 50 years, this could be devastating, altering the shape of the child's face, impacting the growth of the TMJ, causing pain, making it even difficult to um, even to eat because of limited ability to open the mouth. Now that we are treating them, then this extent of damage is a lot less common than it used to be. TMJ arthritis is notoriously difficult to evaluate based upon symptoms and exam findings. So many of us will use MRI to screen for arthritis. Okay, that's interesting. I can remember growing up and hearing a lot about TMJ, um, not in my own life, but people I knew. And I wonder, I always wonder if that, I look back 30 years and wonder if any of those tied into like people who had arthritis that we didn't know about. Uh, so in your time as a rheumatologist, uh, I'm sure you've taken care of a number of people and seen a number of advancements. What do you think is the one thing that has made the most difference since you have been in this practice? Medications. <laughs> the use of TNF inhibitors, the most recently of Cosentix and other IL-17 antagonists, has just made an amazing difference for our ability to treat this condition. Yeah. And... And what's your one hope for the future on it? <laughs> I hope we continue to find additional pathways to target because while most children with spinal arthritis will respond at least somewhat to one or more of these medicines, overall, when you look at outcome data of children with spinal arthritis compared to those with other forms of JIA, the spinal arthritis patients lag behind in terms of pain and impacts on, on function compared to children's other category of JIA. So in part, I think it's because enthesitis is very difficult to treat. In part, that could be because many children with, and adults as well with spinal arthritis have superimposed amplified musculoskeletal pain syndrome or fibromyalgia in adults. And in part, I think we just don't have enough pathways. Having two pathways to target, TNF and IL-17 is certainly a whole lot better than having zero, but we need more. Definitely. Uh, know how to target which treatment to which patient. Yeah. Um, one question I did forget to ask you is, so once someone has been diagnosed and they're coming in regularly to see you, uh, is it a, a blood draw that helps you monitor the disease or what are you looking at in children? Primarily, it's asking the family how they're doing. Are, they, are you having back pain, back stiffness, peripheral joint pain? 
Are you doing better than you were before you started treatment? That by far and away is the most important aspect of things. Then the exam, we look for peripheral arthritis, antithritis, we'll put, um, put pressure in the sacroiliac joints, especially for the uh, assessment of axial inflammation, the SIJ exam, is can yield false positive and false negative findings. So it's a history that's essential. Laboratory tests, many of our patients have normal labs at baseline, even before the diagnosis, their blood count, markers of inflammation are normal. It's probably makes the diagnosis challenging or makes referral challenging. So I suspect that pediatricians use these labs to determine whether or not they need to refer a child. And if their labs are normal, they might say, well, then it's not arthritis, which unfortunately is not the case. They can have arthritis. Having said that, if their blood count and markers of inflammation were normal before starting treatment, then I don't tend to follow them for the purpose of monitoring disease activity. Now, often you do need to get some labs to monitor impacts of medications, make sure the medications are not causing toxicity. And if they have worsening symptoms, if I'm concerned about inflammatory bowel disease, then I'll repeat some of the labs, get some markers of inflammation, and maybe a fecal test to look for inflammation. And there are times where I'm not clear on how well a patient responds to medicines, and then we can repeat the MRI. Interesting. And and you're looking for HLA-B27 as well at the, at the outset of the your... Right. I'll best to order it in a child if they suspect has bundle arthritis. In practice, though, it doesn't change my approach a whole lot. Many children with spinal arthritis are HLA-B27 negative, and so they have back pain, back stiffness. With or without this marker, I'm still going to look for it. Okay. What did we miss? Because I'm sure like we've missed things that uh, parents would be thinking about, or like what advice would you give to a parent as they walk this road? Probably the most important thing is to, and of course, if they're listening to this podcast, they've probably already been diagnosed with spinal arthritis. But that really is the most important thing is to, if your child has back pain, especially they have back stiffness, morning time pain, then they should seek out a referral to a, a rheumatologist, a pediatric rheumatologist if possible. Once they've been diagnosed, if they have been diagnosed with spinal arthritis, then really just to see how their child is doing, let them be as active as they want to be. And if they're not doing well, just let their doctor know. I'm sorry, what did you say? I said, as a parent, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there that everybody is always trying to do the best thing for their kid. And you're like, you feel lost, I'm sure, when this diagnosis comes. Sure. So um, that's good advice. Uh, yeah, I. this has been wonderful. I want to thank you and for your dedication to the kids because thank I'm you. sure you have brought, I think, forward, like, Right, the girls who get to walk down the aisle who might not have had they uh, not been diagnosed properly or people who have a better life because somebody got to them early on the diagnosis. So deeply appreciate your commitment to the, uh, the community and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit 
educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.